is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people, but every once in a while, it's about a musician. And by the way, our music hours have included everything from Frank Sinatra to Tom Petty to Kirk Cobain, Miles Davis, John Denver, Greg Allman, Vladimir Horowitz, John Paul White, Merle Haggard, Chris Stapleton, my favorite, Aretha Franklin and Carol King, Chuck Berry, and of course, Johnny Cash. And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list, because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history, with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex. Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one. Sorry now. I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Bandstem will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstem is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other songs so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn song. So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own style. And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Miss Connie Francis, who's going on? It would sell over one million copies going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. Not that her parents would treat her that way. I remember after Who's Sorry Now, it was a big hit. My mother one night said, take out the garbage. And I said, I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore. I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. <laughs> so I would never get a big hit. She would see me writing in my diary. And she said, you're writing in your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important. She said that to you? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good humbling thing. <laughs> do, do you thank her for... For uh, doing yes. that? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was. Italian home in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old broken down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said accordion, like a dope. 
who could afford a piano anyway. And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first concert. And I sang Anchors Away and O Soli Mio. You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting yes. to learn the accordion at that age. <laughs> the accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since. Can you really remember that age? I'm, I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three, you know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, so I'm just remember, curious how vivid your memories are. I remember it were yesterday. Do you remember being ner- nervous before? No, this? I wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage. <laughs> Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood that's called the Italian Down Neck. In Newark, New Jersey, and what was also ever present was food. Well, food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich. Oh, Don. Where do you taste this cocoa? Man? Huh? Your mouth and your mouth. Like Holy Communion. <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franconero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change. He was having a hard time pronouncing Frank and Arrow. So he said, come over here, little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old, easy to pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see. Like, what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Frankenero tonight and tomorrow? I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? <laughs> Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records, and what hooked them was her demo song, Freddie. It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddie, I know that you've been seeing Daisy. Freddie, like that. You have a standing invitation. MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song, largely because it was the name of his son, whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now, and then the scary realization, where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon? And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on Our American Dreamers Stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's feature with Connie Francis. And when they left off, she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with Who's Sorry Now? But would she have another one? Donnie Kirshner, and he was a publisher, with a broken-down office and a broken desk and a broken chair. And he called me and he said, I have two kids, they're phenomenal. Uh, They're great songwriters. I said, everybody has great songwriters. So he said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil. Neil Sadaka. And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was when Who's Sorry Now hit. We had lost our middle-class home. We were living in a rented apartment in Newark. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors, and I'd get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie in the, in, with his elbow, like, look at this place. So <laughs> they played me song after song after song, and it was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play this song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I got to write in my diary yet. So I was on my belly, writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then he Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next record, Stupid Cupid, hit title. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year for Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of of what was going on with your family? Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sold only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. My father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57, I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. The end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female vocalist. Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship. Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing Oso and Neo in Italian and English. So, um... And then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he got his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me. 
It's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered. When I did make it on records, I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages. And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian. And of the favorite songs of that language, Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London. The Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded and came out with the album... Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four. And to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single Mama would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish, a language that she actually learned as a young kid. Three years old, we moved in with my grandma. We lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in in their colloquial language. How how did you learn it? I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood. And how old were you when, when you learned it as well? Five years old. Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in. You mean that? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my neighborhood. I mean, do you remember any kind of conflict of your, your first experiences? Um, you know, any, any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you? Oh, they accepted me all right. The, the Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even till today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made. And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's. Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all, because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's, there's no uh, guttural sound, like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese. I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before. (laughs) You're right, Connie. And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union... Did. If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or, or death. Um, I did a radio show on Radio Luxembourg, which was a clear channel 50,000 watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, there were 15 million listeners a day, and it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain and even into Tunisia and Morocco. 
and I did the, that show, 15-minute show, every week from New York and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store, and they sold only classical music. Uh, pop music was not was banned. And I heard uh, the song, O Calcutta, coming. There were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, uh, do you like American music? And they said, nein, nein. No, no. I said to them in German. And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they, they had heard my, my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German. And they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know, it was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, wow. which was a horrible thing. And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary-breaking. Her title track for the movie Where the Boys Are would reach number four on the charts, and the Fort Lauderdale, Florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break. And it caught on a little too immediately. When I went to do the movies, well, Fort Lauderdale was a prairie. It was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city. That was the police force. When Where the Boys Are was released in December and January of Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall and at the Gateway Theater down here in Fort Lauderdale, 50,000 kids inundated Fort Lauderdale, and they had to call in the National Guard. They had to call in the Coast Guard. I-95 was a parking lot, and, and kids were sleeping on the beach, and, and uh, lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star-Spangled Banner in the nude on top of a flagpole. Newsweek covered the story, and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County. My goodness, what storytelling. And when we come back, more of this amazing life, this remarkable singer, our American Dreamers series, Connie Francis's life, her story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this great American Dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis. Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream, but not every chapter of her story has been bright. In 1974, while appearing at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience 
and make something positive out of it. But not immediately. It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview, and I, and I didn't... Uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered, and then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I, I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crime. And I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims' Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the Earnest Resistance Law in New York, where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California. Not the one to repeal gay marriage, but a Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California. And within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%. What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder in bringing her back out into the public. What happened? My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that. How close were you guys in age? Two and a half years. He was younger than I was. I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to... How to cope with it? I'm a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, but I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have a, had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends, and also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals. Huh, what kind of humor have you found there? Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. (laughs) (laughs) It was one thing. Then they said to me, "We, uh, you have." I said, "Wait a minute." They they wrote down Peggy Smith uh, on my admittance, and I said, "Wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith. I'm Connie Francis." And they said, "No, we do that to protect your identity." I said, "I want people to know where I am." I want my name. No, it's a hospital procedure. You have to be Peggy Smith. I said, look, I've been in show business all my life, and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star. So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay. (laughs) To close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren who started out his career as a songwriter 
for her. And when Connie's father learned that Darren wanted to elope after one of her shows, he ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint, telling him to never see his daughter again. He would have, my father would have killed us. Well, he would have killed Bobby. And people say throughout the years, why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful? Because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died. Was there anything against him personally that he had? Well, he was male to begin with. So just the fact of another man taking taking his daughter? (laughs) Yeah. So it could have been any male. But especially Bobby. I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write, although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain. A career where she also found deep meaning. What's Connie, what's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you? I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person. And I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero. What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you? The, the horrible. The NACV hospitals where they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, save for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys and 18-year-old kids, the average age of the Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers. Um, Was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go. I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. Well, I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, you know, like Bob Hope, would, they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton, and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, what, what was, what the war was really all about. Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims, an American dreamer. And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. I don't think it gets better than that. I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said about entertaining the troops in Vietnam. And it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad. My father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain. And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, 
on Merle Haggard. The Aretha Franklin Carol King story, remarkable. Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you. Miles Davis, too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and today we're celebrating famed advocate and philanthropist Helen Keller. We sent our Hillsdale intern Shadrach to her birthplace to learn more about this woman. On June 27, 1880, in Tuscumbia, Alabama, Helen Keller was born. She was a healthy baby, born to a former Confederate captain and his wife on their homestead of Ivy Green. She lived a normal life for her first 19 months, but then disease struck. Doctors will often argue if it was either meningitis or scarlet fever. Whatever the answer, she would never see or hear again. Helen Keller began communicating using rudimentary sign language to talk with the daughter of the house cook. By age seven, she could communicate with her family using 60 special family signs. Even at this age, she began surmounting obstacles, learning how to guess someone's age and sex based solely on the vibrations that their feet made on the floor. I made a visit to Ivy Green and met Sue Pilkelton, the executive director of the Helen Keller Museum that's housed there. Under her leadership, tens of thousands of people a year visit the sleepy town of Tuscumbia, Alabama, to see the Keller homestead. Tuscumbia is not on an interstate, so you've got to know you're coming here to get here. We're very proud that we have between 35 and 40,000 visitors a year that come from all over the United States and the world. I always say we're not a state museum or a national, we are an international museum. Ivy Green's museum encompasses Helen Keller's childhood home, preserving it for people of all ages to enjoy. As Helen Keller got older, her parents began seeking someone to teach her. Through the recommendation of famed inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, they found the Perkins Institute for the Blind. The school assigned Anne Sullivan, a former student who was visually impaired, to be Keller's instructor. Anne Sullivan was to teach Keller before she attended school in earnest, which was a long and arduous process. Sue described the beginning of this journey. When Ann Sullivan arrived here in Tuscumbia, she realized that Helen Keller was very spoiled. But of course, Captain and Mrs. Keller did not know how to deal with a child that had become deaf and blind. So basically, they just let her do whatever she wanted to do. And when Ann Sullivan came, she decided real quick, I've got to get her away from the family and get control of her. So they put her in the carriage, which was 640 acres. 
and they drove her all around. And she thought she was going far away, but she just actually came next door to the main house. Sullivan signed words into Keller's hands, attempting to communicate basic concepts like doll or mug. Helen often became frustrated and lashed out, leading to physical altercations between the two. But Sullivan persisted and eventually reached a breakthrough. And took her out to the water pump and she began to pump water and spelling it in Helen's hands. And at first she didn't understand it. And then all of a sudden it was like the key just opened her brain and her mind and she learned water. That was her first word. So she spelled that into Annie's hand. And that day she learned 30 words. So the pump, that's where the breakthrough came. People often associate Helen Keller with that moment at the water pump, the moment where the world opened up before her. Sue told me about her experience with the people that come to visit that water pump. Helen Keller toured the world during her lifetime and left an impression on people from every major nation. But that impact was especially felt in Japan of all places. Yesterday, we had 25 visitors from Japan that could not speak any English whatsoever. But when they got outside and saw the water pump, they began to speak and take pictures. And I often say that little black pump speaks many languages because they definitely know when they get here and they see that pump, what the pump is all about. And that little black pump spoke volumes to the Japanese people. Something easy to notice when you see the sheer amount of Japanese Helen Keller paraphernalia on display in the museum. However, to Sue, the most important guests are those who share Helen Keller's struggles. You know, we want everyone that comes to the birthplace of Helen Keller to leave here with a great positive uh, experience. But when we have someone that comes here, like Helen, we take up a lot of time. And we want them to know that it's very important that they get the full experience of touring the home and grounds. And it's very important. That is our mission. We want everyone to be excited and have a wonderful experience. But most of all, someone with a disability. Perhaps the most famous rendition of Helen Keller's story is the play and later film, The Miracle Worker. Every year, Ivy Green sponsors performances of the play, making sure to accommodate those with disabilities. Last Thursday night, we gave a special performance of The Miracle Worker for a group of deaf or deafblind people uh, throughout the state. They had a convention at Joe Wheeler State Park, and they came, and it was amazing to watch their facial reactions as they were experiencing the pump and and the play itself they really understood and you know as a sighted person many times we take things for granted but it was amazing by the end of it how emotional this group of people who were deaf or deaf blind or just blind really reacted to experiencing the miracle worker after her encounter with the water pump Helen began school in earnest, all the while dreaming of attending college. Sue described the journey that was Helen's education. Helen Keller was the first deafblind to ever go to college. She went to Radcliffe College. Through the years, Helen had a lot of obstacles, and they didn't want her because of her disability. And she said, no, I want to go. So they put her in the room and uh, made her take all kind of tests without Ann Sullivan being by her side. And she 
scores so extremely high, they had to allow her to attend Radcliffe College. When Keller graduated, she began working as an advocate for the blind. She traveled the world, raising money and spurring people into action, all with Ann Sullivan at her side. And despite her success as an advocate, she always resented her inability to speak normally. Here is Helen Keller herself, speaking with the assistance of Ann Sullivan. It is not blindness or deafness that brings me my darkest hours. It is not blindness or deafness that bring me my darkest hours. It is the attitude that I put men in not being able to speak normally. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. But rather than this sorrowful experience, I understand more fully. But out of this sorrowful experience, I understand more all human striving, thwarted ambition, and the infinite capacity of hope. The infinite capacity of hope. Despite these challenges, Helen continued. And even though she was unable to speak normally, she stirred something in the hearts of the crowds that she addressed. The inspiration of one woman's fight set in motion a new worldwide appreciation for the struggles of the deaf and the blind. Ivy Green hosts a yearly camp for children that inspires them to persist despite their disabilities, much in the same way that Miss Keller did. We have started a new camp here at the birthplace in the fall, and it's called Camp Courage, a Helen Keller experience. Uh, we invite children that's grades four through six that are deaf or blind or both or even just have uh, sight or hearing disability. But they come and they eat around the dining room table and they do candle making and they use the sense of ivy green which Helen Keller often talked about the magnolia and the roses because blind people see through smell. And then we have team building and that's very important to these children because so many of them are so withdrawn they don't deal with other kids very well but when they get here and they realize that the other children have the same disability they really bond with each other this is all made possible through the charitable donations of private donors funny enough a japanese american doctor initially financed the camp it was her strength that inspired so many people and helen keller's legacy is far more than a story her tenacity and willingness to strive has persisted long after her death, which would not have been possible without the adversity that she faced. I truly believe if Helen Keller had not been deaf and blind, the work that is being done today would have never been done because that she dedicated her life to let people know you may be blind, you may be deaf, you may be deaf-blind, but if you set your mind to it, you can do all things. You may have a disability, but you can do anything if you set your mind to it. But that was Helen Keller's mission. You know, don't look at me as a deaf person or a blind person. Look at me as a person. I can do all things because I've set my mind to it. I went to school. I work every day. I don't want pity. I don't want pity. Helen Keller's story itself 
holds the power to inspire and continues to inspire countless people, despite her death in 1968. Thanks to Ivy Green and Lions International, that little black water pump will continue its mission for generations. And great work to our Hillsdale intern Shadrach, and that's Hillsdale College. And this is the story of Helen Keller, and it comes from Tuscumbia, Alabama, the home of the Helen Keller Museum. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about people from all walks of life. Our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, brings us the story of a professional prankster whose favorite target was the national news media. Today's liberated woman can be summed up or epitomized as a braless vegetarian with hairy legs and armpits. <laughs> and that's the one and only Alan Abel, prankster, hoaxer, hacker, and proud purveyor of fake news. He was responsible for duping the media into fabricated press conferences, faking his own death, and starting media campaigns for imaginary organizations like CINA, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. <laughs> we'll get to that later, but first, you really got to hear this guy in action. Posing as a man named Jim Rogers, media hoaxer Alan Abel founded a fake organization called Citizens Against Breastfeeding that sought to abolish this supposed act of immorality. He claimed that breastfeeding would lead to drug use later in life. Here he is on live television, arguing on behalf of a totally made-up topic. Should women be allowed to breastfeed in public? One of our guests tonight says absolutely not. Jim Rogers is the East Coast spokesman for Citizens Against Breastfeeding. And Leslie Burby is the vice president of ProMom. So Jim, let's start with you. What's wrong with breastfeeding in the open? Is it too sexy? Our position is, after 22,000 respondents have been interviewed using primarily the Minnesota Malaphasic Personality Profile, many youngsters grow up to become, shall we say, uh, antisocial because of the long breastfeeding period when they are addicted to the mother's breast and they have this oral gratification need that manifests itself into smoking, drinking, and in one instance, Monica Lewinsky, who was breastfed until she was four years old. Leslie, do you have uh, any reaction to what Jim is saying? Well, with due respect, um, had I known that Jim was going to be on the show, I don't know that I would have agreed to appear. And here's another example of the kind of shenanigans that Alan Abel could execute. He managed to gather all of the news people in New York City to a fake press conference about a fictitious lottery winner. They threw dollar bills out of a hotel window, served champagne, and even hired an actress to play the part of the supposed $35 million prize winner. Every TV news station and newspaper in the city showed up and covered the faux news in full detail. Her name is Charlie Taylor, and tonight the 30-year-old cosmetologist is the single winner of the $35 million lottery jackpot. Lucky Charlie showed News 4's Howard Thompson a photocopy of that winning ticket. 30-year-old Charlie Taylor has probably given her last manicure and facial. 
The Dobbs Ferry cosmetologist is the lucky winner of last night's $35 million lottery. Still giddy, the reality of her new life has not yet set in. <laughs> I flipped. I freaked. It's great. It's great. Was there any particular method that you chose in, in picking those particular numbers? No, I, I, <laughs> I, it's a funny thing, I had a dream. You had a dream about the numbers? Yeah, yeah, I had a dream. So that's what made me pick the numbers. The news media didn't even catch on to the fact that the entire event was a ruse until days later, forcing reporters all over the country to make retractions on the air. The event even made it as far as the desk of Tom Brokaw. Everyone loves a winner, of course. By now, lotteries are old news in this country, but big winners, well, they still attract a lot of attention. And when the news got out that a New York woman had won a fortune in the state lottery, reporters were all over the story. And what a story it was. In 1987, Alan Abel created a fake Iranian arms merchant who supposedly made $6 million in a commission on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran. He then arranged the press conference that was attended by all of the major media. The story was never questioned, and it wound up on the national news. And in the rush of events in the Iran scandal, a strange story in New York today. I received $6 million for my participation in uh, this affair. Mehdi Baramani. He says he's an Iranian who made $6 million on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran, and he wants now to give it back. So far, we've only heard three of Alan Abel's elaborate media hoaxes. There are many others to get to, and some that we just can't because we don't have enough time. It's a testament to just how many hoaxes he pulled off over the years. He is relentless. The amount of time, energy, and dedication that it takes to pull off just one of these stunts is remarkable. It's one thing to book a fake interview on the news. Just about anybody could do it. It takes a completely different breed of animal altogether to book the interview, show up in person, look down the barrel of a TV camera, and say that you think that the mother-child bond during breastfeeding is somehow an immoral act. This guy is on a whole nother level. But why does he do it? His years of tireless dedication to his craft of tomfoolery certainly hasn't made him rich or famous. Why would he go through such lengths just to get one over on the media? While literally marching to the beat of his own drum on a street corner, Alan Abel himself tells us why he does what he does. I like to think of my hoaxes as having a message. And I also feel kind of comfortable with the idea that it's an opportunity for me to perform. I'm a performer, I'm a writer, I direct, I do a lot of things, but the opportunities to perform are limited. The talk shows, the radio, television, newspaper interviews, it's a conduit to my audience, the public. Here's another one of the many media stunts that got Alan national news attention. He conned the national media into believing a story about a kid selling off body parts to pay off his student debts. It is a decision most of us probably could not even imagine, selling a lung or a kidney for money to live. A man so desperate, so in need of money, that he's putting his body parts up for sale. He says he's a college graduate who's been out of work over a year, is 15 grand in debt, and is about to be kicked out of his apartment. I was just going over trying to figure out what do I have of value. I don't have a car. And out of all the things I own, this is pretty much the most valuable thing I have. And you think your reasoning is that you own these organs and therefore you should be allowed to sell them? 
Well, I think so. Tom won't give out his last name or any other information because he says what he's doing is illegal. Well, that's what I've been told, but I might be able to work around it by doing it as a non-returnable loan. And again, days later, journalists all over the country began to realize that they'd been had. That 28-year-old who offered to sell a kidney or lung for $25,000 had no intention of parting with either. It turns out he was an actor just playing a part. A veteran media hoaxer, Alan Abel, has owned up to orchestrating the scam. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in the prankster story of Alan Abel. When we come back, some of his best hoaxes ever perpetuated on live TV. Don't go anywhere. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of professional prankster, Alan Abel. Let's get back to Jesse. Newspaper columnist Phil Reisman remembers his early days in journalism and his dealings with Alan Abel. One day, he took the bait by accident after finding a sensational advertisement in the back of a newspaper. Alan Abel was my first real lesson in journalism. I can tell you that. I was in, in desperate... Uh, need and want of a byline. I wanted to get a story in this paper. And I remember, I don't know how the, how I uh, actually found out about this. I might have been just perusing the white pages of the Manhattan phone book. Just out of, by accident, I found an entry called Omar's School for Beggars. Now I have with me this evening Mr. Omar. Omar is the founder and owner of Omar's School for Begging, which is an institution that teaches the fine art of creative panhandling which I thought, this is unbelievable. And this is like in the 70s when people were really out of work and it was like, you know, the city was, uh, New York City was in a drop-dead mode from Gerald Ford, you know. Um, there were homeless people everywhere. So I thought, well, this, this is really amazing and, and probably fits into what's going on right now in the world. There's no help for people in this position. There's a broad spectrum of America that is faced with this problem. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of men who have served loyally for years and years to their companies, been put out on the streets. They're garbage. I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I wrote the story about this guy who runs his panhandler school. Here is Omar. Welcome. Years went by, and I began to realize that he was pulling this hoax over and over and over again to other people. And I, I started saving clips, and I had built up a file on Abel. I said, this guy, i got to watch for him. It was incredible how he repeated the same hoaxes over and over and over again, even though they would be exposed, and then he would do it again. Perhaps Alan Abel's most famous media hoax over the years was his campaign to put clothes on animals through the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, or Senna for short. In 1959, Abel wrote a satirical story about this imaginary organization for the Saturday Evening Post, but editors rejected it. So he then transformed his story into a series of press releases that garnered media attention. The group used the language and rhetoric of moralists for the aim of clothing naked animals, including pets, barnyard animals, and large wildlife. Slogans such as, decency today means morality tomorrow, and a nude horse is a rude horse were offered. 
Abel persuaded the actor Buck Henry to play the group president, G. Clifford Prout. Abel played the group vice president. The Society to Clothe All Naked Animals for the Sake of Decency, or SINA, S-I-N-A. SINA received so much press. It was much ado about nothing in my own mind. But it, it's kind of like, uh, maybe this is not a good analogy, but it's kind of like someone who drops a match and suddenly you have a, a, a forest fire. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity. It was a, a commentary on censorship. If we're going to censor books in the library that might be, seem salacious, then uh, why don't we uh, censor those animals who are out there being naked? And that's what allegorical satire is all about. But it was very well done, too well done, because it obscured that message. I don't think anybody got it. Promoting Cinna gave me the understanding that with very little funds and uh, very few props, with a straight face, you can convince America and the media that you have this crazy movement. Apparently, a lot of people failed to realize that this was all just a bunch of nonsense. Some subscribed to the newsletter, opening local chapters all over the country of moral activists who thought it was a good idea to put pants on a horse. <laughs> Not everyone caught on to the joke. I like to think that poking fun at something is really just a cover. It's just the skin, the surface. Underneath that surface or skin is a message, a moral message. In the case of Cinna, right away it's contradictory because we're for it in the title, and yet I was against it. So that's a clue that there must be something wrong here, that it could be a joke. Another one of Alan's bizarre pranks on national TV was when he paid a group of actors to attend a taping of the Phil Donahue show back in the 1980s and pretend to faint. It was a great sight that night on the news because the headlines in the newspapers were Audience Flees Donahue Show. It was live television with a fastly fading studio audience for the Phil Donahue Show today. Combination of the lights, the possible anxiety of uh, the t live television, and the heat uh, caused one woman to faint. And then four others fainted. People started to figure out who Alan Abel was and some weren't too happy about his trickery. Messages for whoever is running this organization. Your organization is considered born on the shores of ignorance, and your group is fed by the spoon of stupidity. You guys are the biggest bunch of sick morons I have ever met in my life. Um, I think all of you need long psychotherapy. Bye. Some people were sick of it, and the news media was beginning to get tired of it as well. At that time, in the early 70s, the media was more considerate of practical joking and utilizing the media as a conduit to the public. But as the years went by and the competition got greater, the news got more serious and the pressure was on to come up with hard news factually, quickly, there was no time to fool around or play around. So the breed of reporters who came out of the 80s and 90s were guys and gals who just uh, didn't want to have fun. No way. With the people in the media getting wiser, a guy like Alan Abel just doesn't stop. He went on to act in daytime TV shows like Mari Povich and Jerry Springer at the time. In the documentary about his life called Cain Raising Abel, Alan's own daughter narrates what life was like living with a guy like this for a father. Can you imagine being this trickster's kid? You are trying to tell me that that child has eaten nothing, nothing but hair? One time he even dragged me along on one of his appearances. He was posing as Dr. Herbert Strauss, a firm believer in the notion that people should consume human hair because it's high in protein. Jennifer, do, would you like a hair sandwich? 
He tried to get me to eat a hair sandwich on camera, but I refused, even though we had been rehearsing it for weeks, and I knew there was hair in only one side of the bun. It was actually my mom's hair inside the sandwich. What does it taste hair? like? Uh, it just, just, just tastes uh, a bit like uh, a hamburger. Even though my dad enjoyed doing these types of TV appearances, he wanted to keep pulling off his own pranks. This is a hair pie made from a dark-haired woman. But it wasn't always about national attention and elaborate hoaxes that kept Alan's wheels turning. There's a video of him online on local cable access TV for over 20 minutes going on about the history of the world as told through the snare drum. Here's a small piece of that speech. My name is Alan Abel, and I would like to tell you about the relationship of the snare drum and its effect on civilization today. Many people have asked, where did this drum really come from? Well, last year, an archaeologist friend of mine went to Egypt, and after poking among the pyramids for over six months, he discovered that this particular drum actually came from a music store in Greenwich, Connecticut. However, the drum does date back to the year 4000 B.M., which, of course, is before Madonna. Now, in that year, we had cavemen who used to use the drum as a means of communication. They would, first of all, cut down a tree, hollow out the log, cover the end of that log with the skins of neighboring tribes, and then beat on the end of that log with an arm or a leg from one of the tribes. And, of course, we developed our first log rhythms that way. Now, we would have one tribe talk to another tribe by using a drum book. They actually had a drum book. For example, let's have a woman in a tribe over here who wants to talk to a lady in a tribe three miles away. She would look up her number in the drum book, and it might be three, two, one, roll twice. So she would send the number. Her friend would hear the, the number on the drum and know that she was wanted on the drum. On January 2nd of 1980, both the New York Times and the New York Daily News reported the death of the famous media hoaxer, Alan Abel. The Times provided a flattering account of his career. Unfortunately for these papers, there was a small problem. Abel was very much alive. The newspapers learned this when Abel held a press conference the next day in which he revealed that the news of his death was a hoax engineered by himself and a team of 12 accomplices, some of whom had sent the false story to the media while others had acted to confirm it. Abel explained that he perpetuated the hoax for publicity specifically to publicize the fact that he was a professional hoaxer. And that, my friends, is the one and only Alan Abel. Marching to the beat of his own drum, he's dedicated his entire life to pranks, hoaxes, and fake news, doing it better than perhaps anyone else, just for kicks. I can't think of a better way to spend a life well-lived. Can you? VD has reached epidemic proportions. Ten cents is a small price indeed to pay for this sanitary sanctuary. A private John in public. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another On Leadership story, this time with the first Marine to ever be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. The third of four kids of an Italian immigrant Brooklyn, New York family, Pace graduated from the Naval Academy in 1967 and soon found himself leading a platoon in the middle of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. After a distinguished career in and out of combat, Pace retired in 2007 as a four-star general. He then did what so many great old Marines do. They try to help the young ones coming up. We're going to listen in on General Pace's talk with third-class midshipmen at the Naval Academy. These are 19-year-olds, but Annapolis, along with other service academies and some standout civilian universities like Hillsdale, takes the moral formation of its students very seriously. And so naturally, Pace began his talk with the young midshipmen with a story from back when he was in their shoes. But when I was a third-class mid, don't know why, but both of my roommates decided they were going to start smoking pipes. I watched this for about a week, and I wanted to be part of the family, so to speak. So I went down to the mid-store, bought a pipe. It was $5.50. I paid for it with a $10 bill. There were no credit cards back then. I went back to my room, and I sat there for about two or three days looking at this pipe and saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't even like to smoke. So I took the pipe back down to the mid-store and was going to trade it back in for my $10 bill, right? I don't remember all the specifics. I should, but I don't. But for some reason, while I was down there, I decided I'm going to keep it. So I go back to my room. Two days later, I get called down to the commandant's office. And he says to me, you have been accused of stealing a pipe from the midshipman store. Because there were no receipts, because we didn't do business then like we do now, I had no way of proving that, yes, I had been in the midshipman store with the pipe in my hand. Yes, I had walked out without paying for it that day, but I had paid for it three days before. I was, I mean, my stomach was a wreck. My brother was in the class of 65. And he came to me and he said, Pete, I love you. If you stole that pipe, you have got to stand up and admit it. And if you did not steal that pipe, then you need to stand your ground, and I'm with you. I really do not know how this thing might have turned out, except for what happened the day after. One of my classmates was a guy named John Griffin. He was our third-class company commander. And John saw that I was upset and said to me, what's the problem? And I told John that I'd been accused of stealing a pipe. And he said, you mean the pipe that I saw you with? And he mentioned a day 
before the day that I supposedly stole it. And I said, John, are you sure that you saw me with that? And he said, I'm positive because we were doing this. We were studying for this, this test. Da, 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 da. John went and saw the company officer, told them what he had seen. I was exonerated. But there was about a month of my life where I really thought that I was going to be shown the door because I had no way to prove myself. Pace then carried the lessons from that month through to the rest of his career. As a result of that, quite honestly, I've been more lenient on more people than I should have been. Every time some PFC stood in front of me and swore up and down that he didn't do whatever it was he didn't do, I tended to believe him. I'm not sorry I did. Because when you're a leader, you can always show some leniency. If they deserve to be shown the leniency, you'll feel great about having been the leader who gave it to them. And if they don't deserve to be shown the leniency, they'll show themselves again, and you can kill them then. And great advice. After graduating from the academy, Pace quickly found himself leading a platoon of Marines in Vietnam in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And there, something else happened that also shaped his career and his life. We were on patrol. And an incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that, you know, weren't right. And I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through, 
what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge? 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am so that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable speech, General Peter Pace, sharing stories from his life. I mean, these are confessionals of a sort. I mean, he was a hair trigger away from killing a whole lot of innocent people because he was just ticked off. And so setting your moral compass, we can all hear words of wisdom like that. And by the way, we all need a sergeant like that who just stares at us. And by the way, that sergeant was going up against a higher rank. He wasn't saying anything, but he was through his silence and through his stare. And we all have that opportunity with our bosses, with people we know and care about. More on leadership. General Peter Pace's stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to General Peter Pace's talk at Annapolis with 19-year-olds. And not many 19-year-olds are hearing this message, let alone having everything that's happening around them reinforcing this message. And where we left off, Peter Pace had just told a remarkable story about, well, a couple of stories actually about events that changed his life. And... Of course, not all moral courage is about restraint. Sometimes it's about making the decision that's right for your subordinates, but possibly is hazardous to your career. Here's Pace telling a story from the 1980s when he was commanding about a 1,000 Marines. When I was Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander, my battalion was was afloat aboard ship. We were off the Philippines, and we got word that the U.S. Embassy wanted my Marines to come ashore and be part of a parade for President Marcos. The island on which they were going to have the parade was a known island of violence, a lot of insurgents. I said, okay, we can do this, but we're coming in with ammunition because I'm not going to have my mortars, my machine guns, my rifles, and most importantly, my Marines, challenged while they're in this parade by insurgents. The word came back. They said, oh, no, you can't do that. You cannot march past President Marcos with ammunition. And my answer back was, okay, we're not going to march past President Marcos. This became a very, very sensitive subject. Messages going back and forth. And I refused to put my Marines ashore. We went back to Okinawa from whence we'd come aboard ship. And when I got off ship, I got word that the uh, 
division commander wanted to see me right away. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, lieutenant colonel, 16 years of service, four to go to retirement, uh, now what? What am I going to do next, right? <laughs> I was okay with my decision, but I didn't know whether or not the division commander was. So I walked in and report to him, Major General Glasgow. I walk in and report, and sir, Lieutenant Colonel Pace reporting is ordered. He looks at me and says, Pete, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to be Pete, you're fired, or what are we going to be, okay? But it reinforced for me, again, I didn't do that lightly. I didn't do it glibly. I thought about it a lot, real hard. I mean, there's other times when I thought about things really hard and done it wrong. You owe yourself as a leader to think about things the best you can and get to the best clarity you can and then make your decision and live with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin, that's a tough one when you're making tough decisions like these with so many people's lives on the line. And of course, the higher up in rank one goes, the more complicated and consequential these decisions become. Pace then told the midshipman a story from when he was a one-star brigadier general in the early 1990s. I get a call from the Commandant of the Marine Corps saying, hey, uh, 1st Marine Division is going to go to Somalia. They don't have an assistant division commander. General Wilhelm is division commander. wants you as his deputy. Can you go? So I went, and we go ashore. The port of Mogadishu is really very small. We had three pre-positioned ships worth of equipment and one small port that could take one ship at a time. So the ships are coming in and out and they're putting stuff on the, uh, on the uh, deck and, putting, and taking what they need. And because the port itself was so small, you couldn't leave stuff out. You had to put it all back. Whatever you didn't use, you put back on the ship. It went back out. The next ship came in. We're about to go attack a warlord's compound. He has T-55 tanks. Now, if T-55 tanks are significant if you're wearing nothing but your uniform, but kind of pieces of trash if you happen to have your nice M1A1 tank. And you can stand off and take shots with your M1A1 all day long and kill T-55s before they get anywhere near where they can shoot. So we're feeling pretty good about this. General Wilhelm sitting in one chair, and General Pace is sitting in another chair, and we're being briefed, and all of a sudden, the captain, tank, company commander says, excuse me, the main gun, tank ammo, got sent back out to sea. This is the night before an attack. So I'm sitting there, and I always, I have kind of a strange sense of humor anyway. And, I mean, it was dead silence, and you could just see General Wilhelm. His jaws were getting... I mean, you could tell he was about to go eat something. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I kind of smirked, and I said, we should do this without ammo. Put yourself in the warlord's position. Do you think that he thinks that we're stupid enough not to have ammo? <laughs> Wilhelm, who was, went from being totally pissed to being hysterical, says, you're right, but now that we've had our yucks, we're saying, okay, fair enough, this is going to work, but just in case he doesn't believe 
that we actually have ammo, you know, we need to make sure we've got Cobra gunships and all that stuff stacked up. So the ethical part of this was making sure we, in fact, protected PFC pace. But the decision part of it was we need to do this, and we can do this, and nobody would think we're that stupid. So we were that stupid, and we got away with it. Okay. <laughs> Having shared some personal stories from throughout his four decades in uniform, General Pace then gave these midshipmen some advice for their careers. Grow where you are planted. You're going to get a chance, two-plus years from now, to put in your request for what you want to do next. Some of you are not going to get your first choice. The Marines and the sailors who are looking to you don't care whether it's your first choice or your 12th choice. They need you and they deserve from you that you be the best leader you can possibly be for them. I promise you, if you will ask for and fight for what you want in an assignment and then go do whatever you're told to do like it was your first choice, you will always get another great job as a follow-on job. Why? Because there are more great jobs than there are great people. You can drive yourself nuts worrying about what somebody two or three levels above you is doing that's not right. And there's not a darn thing you can do about that. So my recommendation to you is stay in your lane. And an officer's lane, in my opinion, is what he or she is responsible to do and an understanding of what your boss and their boss are doing and an understanding of what your first subordinate and their first subordinate are doing. If you will focus on that bandwidth and operate as best you can every day in an ethical, moral way with integrity, your, in the case of Marines, your 40 Marine platoon will very quickly become a 200-man company, will very quickly become a 1,000-man battalion because you're focused on the things that you are responsible for and over which you have some ability to have impact. And what great advice that applies to everything in life. Grow where you are planted, the general was telling these 19-year-olds. And there are more great jobs than great people. So true. Don't be in a rush. That was another one I loved. A great coach of mine said, don't be the boy in the rush. Stop rushing. And that's very little difference in that than grow where you are planted. Slow down, make the best of your situation, and learn right here. And by the way, one last story that would probably embarrass General Pace a bit. He's certainly not the sort to push this story himself. After his retirement ceremony at Fort Myer in Virginia on October 1, 2007, General Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. By the way, we did too. We sent our Hillsdale students there. And you can go to our website. It was a special Memorial Day celebration. And they talked to folks in front of that memorial, one of the most beautiful memorials in all of Washington, D.C. But Pace went to that memorial 
the striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,307 Americans who paid the ultimate price in Vietnam. And onto each 3 by 5 piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And again, each of these 3 by 5s was for men who died in his platoon in Vietnam. On those cards, he wrote, These are yours, not mine, exclamation point, with love and respect. Your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And there you have it, Peter Pace's story to the third-class midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. In a way, their stories, too, all the fallen men's stories in Vietnam. This is Our American Stories. Stories. 